Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here today with my friend and Chavruta, Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shabbat, daf Tetvav, 15. Now, this daf is one of those pages that highlights a specific aspect of learning Gemara that is particularly challenging. Namely, the Gemara presupposes that you already know everything before it's going to tell you anything. And of course, this is a challenge because nobody does. Um, maybe they did once upon a time, but I don't think so. Nowadays, we do have all kinds of tools to help us understand what these concepts are, right? And we can look up things from, you know, from in an English translation, in a commentary, in from the Rishonim, from the Achronim, from Safaria, from Wikipedia, for that matter. There's a great deal of information that is out there that will help us understand what is going on. Specifically, our DAF is referring to the 18 Gezerot that we already talked about, you know, from two days ago. But now it's not elaborating on each one. It's talking about them as if you're already in the know. And that can be quite daunting. Yes. So one of the things we see this page is doing is it's getting into a specific discussion about the Gezeira, about the decree that a non-Jewish land, literally the physical lands itself, like a clump of dirt, can have the status of Tuma, that it is impure. And it's trying to figure out the chronology of wh- where and how did that happen. And it goes through a bunch of different time periods, either 180 years before the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, 80 years before. And then it gets to um, another time period that it mentions here. And this is on the middle of Amud Bet, where it says, the Akati Be'usha Gezur. What didn't the sages, right, didn't they decree this in Usha? And this would be many, many years after the destruction of the temple. So I wanted to just do a little bit of a, what, a who's who, what's what today on what Usha is and what actually this is part of, of the Takanot Usha. So Usha is a um, know, city, town in the Galil, and it's where the Sanhedrin was moved to after the Bar Kokhba revolt. So remember, originally the Sanhedrin was in Yerushalayim after Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, you know, says, uh, right, he basically surrenders Yerushalayim and they move the Sanhedrin to Yavna. And that was that story that we read in Brachot with uh, Rabbi Gamliel II. Um, and then eventually after the Bar Kokhba revolt, where the Jews were really in a terrible state, they needed to leave Yavna, and they went to this town of Usha, um, and it was under the leadership of Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel. Um, so, um, and this would be, if I believe correctly, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel II. So that's who they're there with. And in Usha itself, they enacted a whole bunch of um, different decrees that are called the Takanot Usha. Um, the people who went to Usha were primarily the students of Rabbi Akiva, so some of the rabbis who were there were Rabbi Yehuda ben Eli, Rabbi Nehemiah, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yossi. Rabbi, um, so, you know, these were some of the people who went there. And we'll talk about this, you know, later because we'll see other Gemaras where this will come up. And the takanot that they dealt with were primarily around some laws dealing with monetary relationships with families and a lot of tumantara, which is what we're dealing with in our particular death. And the other thing I think we need to be thinking about is what's the purpose of a takana? Like, why would rabbis have to, you know, give a takana? And we need to put this in a context of that after the failure of the Bar Kokhba rebellion, there was really a tremendous amount of hardship. And, uh, you know, for the Jewish people, this was a very, very 
unstable time. And therefore, uh, by enacting some of these takanot, it's really what it's trying to do is to give some stability towards Jewish life at that time. And the idea of a takana is basically making a decree, you know, for that particular period of time. Sometimes some of these become takanot that then we use for generations afterwards. Sometimes a takana can be something that's just in that particular generation. Um, but just to, I think it's important that we as learners know what the takanot usha were. So again, this is dating, you know, from the end of the Tanaitic period. Um, they're not really included in the Mishnah. Um, and, um, but we know about them from the Amorayim. The Amorayim will refer to them, like in this page of Gomara here, they will refer to the Takanot Usha. So that's also something that's interesting about them is that they were written by the Tanaim, but it's not like there's a particular Mishnah that sort of explains what exactly happened in Usha and what all the uh, Takanot were. Um, so again, so they have to do with family law, property obligations, um, and some things with Tumantara. So I, I think the way to think about it is, is that it was sort of laying down, you know, some basic principles of sort of reestablishing a, a legal system after you have a period of time of real, you know, chaos and disruption. So I'm going to, I want to run through what these takanot are. I do want to just make one caveat that we've been using, or at least I've been using these terms interchangeably, and, and we should maybe be careful about that. There's a difference between the term, at least, you know, officially, there's a difference between a gzera and a takana. Now, I don't know, maybe maybe the there are others who will use the terms loosely as well, but I've always learned that a gzera is something that is like a, a negative. It's there to protect something. It's there to prevent something from happening. So the gzera is made lest you come to do whatever, right? We talked about the siagib, those fences around behavior. So those are gzerot fundamentally. And a takana is something to establish, something positive, so to speak, that will put something there that wasn't there before. Um, I would say that, for example, the ketubah, the ketubah of Shemben Shatach that we talked about yesterday is probably under the consideration of a takana. Now, there's no practical difference, I don't think, between whether you use the term takana or gzera, except for that it kind of gives you gives you a framework of what, what the areas that we're talking about. Um, and again, I, it may not be as hard and fast of a rule as, I'm, as I've just stated it. I imagine different people use a language. Right, and I think, but I think it's important to understand that there's sort of, the, both of those words are sort of floating around, a gazera and a takana. What we're talking about in Usha is always referred yes. to as the takanot Usha. And, and they were indeed established as decrees, like to go make sure that this happens, right? As opposed to uh, safeguarding against something. So here we go. Vakate um, ba'usha gazor, right? These were de decreed in usha. Okay, maybe I'm wrong about the gzera takana term because the gemara there just says gazor. So I, I, we will get back to you if we ever come up with something that's you know hard and fast on this policy because the gemara here is using the term interchangeably, takana usha, but it's using the verb gzera, gazor. Ditznan, al shishas vekot sorfin etatruma. Now, what we're talking about here is um, where there's a doubt, where there's a question, an uncertainty 
about whether there was in fact Tuma in the situation. We've already established, right, that Tuma and Tara is about status. And the question is, what happens when you have an uncertain status, right? When do you have an uncertain, an uncertainty as, a, as to whether Tuma is, is the status of the item that's there, right? So whatever that may be. So in each one of these cases, so the first case is, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this is because I think that this is actually an example where the Gemara, surprisingly almost, gives us the information that we might otherwise already be presupposed to have known from our extensive learning of Tumantara. And since we don't have, I don't have extensive learning of Tumantara to this point, I'm very grateful that there's elaboration on the point in this, of these Takanot pertaining to Tumantara straight away, right? There's, there's the example, and then you have to just look up what that example is. What does it mean? And you're good to go. So in the suffix of beta pras, meaning what is the, the suffix of beta pras? Trum, so is if you have truma, now we'll talk more about truma and a maestro at some other time, but these are fundamentally the different levels of tithing, right, from one's produce. So in truma, you have truma that's in a field. Now truma is, is also kodesh, right? It's given to the, the koanim to eat, and therefore it has a, a certain level of sanctity. Now, if you have truma that ends up in a field where there had been a grave, that now the grave has been overturned because the field was plowed and you don't know where, I mean, it's a little bit grisly to think about, right? But you don't know exactly how this interment was disrupted, shall we say, and you don't know what, what part of the ground may now be considered tabe. It's uncertain. So you don't know where your truma, you, you, know, you know where your truma landed, but you don't know whether that ground where it landed is in fact impure. Now your truma is a suffix. You don't know what the status is because either it was it landed in air, an area that was not tummy ground or an area that was. That's item number one. That's suffix number one. Next, the suffix of the, the ground that land that comes, meaning dirt, that comes from Eretz Amin, right? Which means, right, there's a status of uncertain impurity to begin with for Eretz Amin, right? It's a suffix to begin with. And now your truma came in contact with the dirt that was of this suffix status then your truma also is going to acquire the suffix status. Suffix, again, meaning doubt. Three, the suffix, where you're talking about from the clothing of an Amharitz. What does that mean? Well, unfortunately, the assumption is that an Amharitz, or by definition, an Amharitz, literally an ignoramus, is someone who is not careful with regard to Tumantara, right? That's, that's quintessentially somebody who doesn't, presumably doesn't know enough to be careful. It doesn't necessarily mean negligence, somebody who doesn't care, but they, they're not able to be, right? Because they simply don't know enough. So in that case, we're concerned that an Amaharz is not going to be careful with regard to purity. And then, so what happens when somebody who is in Nida might be in contact, who, who a menstruating woman is in Nida and is therefore considered impure? What happens if she were to come into contact with the clothing of the Amaharz and since he is not careful with regard to Tumantara, it may well be that she has fundamentally, and pardon the term, contaminated his clothing, right? She has rendered them into a status of suffix impurity, where we're not clear whether they became impure or if they did not, right? Okay, so now, and then if the truma came in contact with him, or with his clothing, really, not with him, now you've got suffix, right? Meaning if uh, if there's a certainty that a Nida woman came into contact with the clothing, then you can still end up with a suffix where the truma hit. Okay, if you if this particular case has too many steps, because it kind of does, 
without a chart. I kind of like to make a chart on the board for you all. Um, just imagine that I did, or we can just move on. Now, next, a suffix of kalim, right? The kalim are not found. Now, you don't know, I mean, that are found, right? You have discovered vessels, some kind of, I don't know, utensils, and you don't know whether they were tummy or not tummy before you found them. So now what happens? They have a status of suffix tuma. Suffix tuma. Yeah, suffix tuma. So now what happens if truma comes in contact with them? That same suffix is transferred to the tuma. Okay, next. There's another suffix of spit. Again, apologies for the graphic nature of this, except for there is, as we keep saying, there is something very real about this that the Gemara does not shy away from bodily fluids and, and all their potential unpleasantries. In this particular case, there is spittle that has come in contact with the truma, or the truma has come in contact with spittle, spittle on the ground, I guess. And you don't know, was it the spit of a zav? In which case, the zav is impure, the spit will be impure, and whatever comes in contact would be rendered impure. But you don't know that. Maybe it came, maybe the spit came from somebody who's not at all impure. So your truma that came in contact with this questionable, uncertain spit is now in the status of uncertain impurity, right? Suffix tuma. Now, then, with, again, with the bodily fluids, there's an uncertain case of somebody's urine, right? What happens if you have somebody who whose urine is even adjacent to that of an animal, right? There's unpleasant smells everywhere, right? Meaning there's, I don't know, maybe it was a coroner, right? So you end up with an animal's urine and also a person's urine. Now you don't know what 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 happens. Is this is urine that of some, the same way with a spit. Is this someone from a zav? Is it some from a zav, pardon me? Or is it, and therefore tame? Or is it from somebody who's completely fine? In which case, in which case the urine is not clean, but it's also not impure. So, what happens then if truma came in contact with it? Because you don't know the status of the urine, you don't know the status of the truma. Or you know that the, rather the status of the truma becomes uncertain, right? It's a suffix, whether it's impure or not impure. Okay, now let's just check back in the end of this section here, right? Al-vadai maga'an ba'al-safek tumatan sorfin etatuma. What you have is a certainty that the truma came in contact with the thing that is possibly, but not certainly, and in fact, uncertainly, Tame. So what are you supposed to do with it, right? It's truma. It's truma. You can't, somebody who needs to be eating truma, bitahara, right, in a pure state, cannot eat something that is in an impure state, but there is no way to resolve any of these uncertainties or at least nearly never right i suppose someone could come along and say like oh that's where i pissed yesterday right but for the most part right there's no there's no real way to determine what to resolve the the suffix in this case right and so then what are you supposed to do the answer is you burn it you burn it and this is a policy that basically happens when there are sfeikot for things like truma meaning where you cannot you cannot use it right so it has to be destroyed or left to destroy itself, right? In the case of, let's say, mold, right? There's all kinds of ways that this can happen, but it's not it's not ever to be used because it's in a case of suffix. And so you can't use it as something that is impure. And I mean, you can't treat it as something that is impure and you can't treat it as something that is pure. Listen, the fact is, um, again, we mentioned this the other day, there's nothing wrong with being impure, right? You just can't, You just don't know. 
let me say that again. You have to know whether the thing before you that you let's say that you're about to eat is pure or impure. Because if it's kudshim, let's say, it needs to be handled with purity. And if it's just regular and it's impure and the person eating it is impure, so great, you had a nice meal. It doesn't matter, right? There's nothing, there's no nothing bad about the truma coming in contact with something that would be impure or it would render it unusable. The tricky part here is that it is a suffix. And therefore, like we throw up our hands in the air and say like, okay, we can't, we can't rectify this. So we need to burn it. Exactly. And I think that, you know, it's really what I think these takanot are doing is it's just taking out any suffix. Um, You know, when I was thinking about that, I could see how someone would read this and be like, isn't this being so stringent on people, right? Like you're basically taking out any ability to maybe ask a question or to work something through. We're just going to make an assumption when something is a suffix that we're going to have to sort of go uh, towards erring on the side that something was tame. And, but I also think that in the historical context piece, and that's why it's important to understand how this came about and not just to read the page and be like, wow, Chazal was very, very strict when it came to Tumantara. I don't think that's really what's going on here. I think, first of all, like to eat truma when, you know, you are tame, you know, or the truma could be tame. Yes, that's, that's a Doraisa. That's from the Torah. But I think in a way, in times of chaos or times of disruption, it actually makes it easier for people. You're giving people very, very clear guidelines of what to do in particular areas. And you're just saying, like, this is just what it's going to be. This is just the law to follow. You don't even really have to think about it. And so I think in a way, you're actually being more helpful to people by enacting these types of takanot. I think also there's kind of a knee-jerk modern impulse to say, how wasteful, right? What do you mean that you can't eat the truma? You must, that's, that's you know, we, we want to salvage every last thing. We care about the environment. We care about recycling. And we do, right? I'm saying I, I certainly do. I think, I think most of our listeners certainly, at least, at least at some level and some maybe to a great degree, care about this kind of thing. And I think that this is where our fundamental disconnect from the aspects of Kajim and Tumantara uh, kind of gets in our way, right? Because the idea, like if you... You would never, I, I don't know what, like if something was contaminated from with nuclear radiation, you would not say no, but you must eat it, right? You would say that is not food anymore, right? So the the idea here is that, I don't know that we could say that it's not food, but we have, oh, it's been, again, like kind of rendered unusable in a way that we don't have the sensitivity to understand just how obvious it was that it would be rendered unusable. Um, and I think that it's an important recognition of like where our intuition kind of comes up against the wall simply because exactly. yeah we live I in think a that that's you know the strictness of it and the wastefulness of it certainly uh is not something that we're used to with our own modern sensibilities but I think is so vivid here of how important these this type of law was for those people living in that time I mean this took up a lot of their time um in terms of Jewish law and what they were practicing day to day which is what I'm always taken by and how different that is than what we do today. So with that, we'll end. Shavua Tov, everybody. That's our DAF for the day. Uh, please find us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Uh, leave us a comment, thought, question, 
on our Facebook page, Talking Talmud. And until tomorrow's daf, go and learn. Thank <music> you.